Just a heads up, this episode deals with issues including anti-Semitism, racism, racially motivated violence and violence towards women. There is also some strong language. It's Piece by Piece, the musical theatre talk show podcast. Welcome to part one of our discussion of Parade. Our guests are Rob Ashford, Bertie Carvel, Lara Pulver, Tom Murray and Alfred Urey. But first, please welcome your host, Joe Bunker. Hello and welcome to Piece by Piece, the musical theatre talk show. I'm Joe Bunker and as has become customary, I'm going to be unpacking an iconic musical with conversation, music, quizzes and witty repartee from our incredible lineup of guests. Today we are talking about Parade, the 1998 musical with book by Alfred Urey and music and lyrics by Jason Robert Brown. Even more specifically, we are going to be talking about the revised version of Parade, first seen at the Donmar Warehouse in London in 2007. Now, you may well already be a huge fan of this show, but even if you are brand new to it, fear not, we're going to fill you in on everything you need to know. So first up, here is the piece-by-piece introduction to Parade. Parade tells the true story of Leo Frank, a Jewish factory superintendent in Atlanta, Georgia, who in 1913 was accused and convicted of the murder of 13-year-old Mary Fagan. The case was a national sensation. Debate around the trial was inflamed by an often anti-Semitic, anti-Yankee Georgia press, and the case was used as fodder for journalists and public figures of all kinds. It led, on the one hand, to the formation of the Anti-Defamation League, and on the other, to a revival of the Ku Klux Klan. The project of transforming this piece of history into a musical was driven by legendary Broadway director-producer Harold Prince. He teamed up with Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Alfred Urey, whose connections to the story ran deep. Not only was he from Atlanta himself, but his uncle owned the pencil factory at the heart of the case. Stephen Sondheim was their first choice composer, but when he turned it down, Prince suggested a friend and collaborator of his daughter Daisy's, Jason Robert Brown. His review, Songs for a New World, had opened at the WPA Theatre three years earlier, but otherwise he had not written a full-length musical, so it was a pretty bold choice. He was just 28 when Parade opened in November 1998 at Lincoln Centre Theatre, the biggest non-profit institutional theatre in America. The production won two Tony Awards for Best Book and Score, but the critical response was mixed and the show ran for only 84 performances. It was in London. Nearly a decade later, the parade found its fullest expression in that most intimate and magical of theatrical spaces, the Donmar Warehouse. Director-choreographer Rob Ashford reduced the 36-person cast to 15 and, accompanied by a nine-piece orchestra, created what artistic director Michael Grandage considered one of the most complete pieces of theatre staged there during his 10 years. That Donmar production was nominated for eight Laurence Olivier Awards and lost every single one of them to the West End production of Hairspray. But it remains one of the most brilliant, moving pieces of theatre that I have ever seen. In his review for The Independent, Paul Taylor wrote, The Donmar once again vibrantly vindicates an American musical cold-shouldered by its homeland. It establishes Parade as an admirably ambitious, musically daring piece that deserves praise for attempting to intertwine the political and the personal. I'd go further and say that not only does it succeed on that count, it deserves to be recognised as one of the finest musicals of the past quarter century. And I'm delighted to get to talk about it with the team behind that production. 
My first guest is one of the most versatile actors around. The star of TV shows like Dr. Foster and Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, and on stage the winner of two Olivier Awards for his iconic performances as Miss Trunchbull in Matilda and as Rupert Murdoch in the James Graham play Inc., both of which he took to Broadway and the latter of which garnered him a Tony Award. But back in 2007, he gave an unforgettable performance as Leo Frank in Parade. It's Bertie Carvel. Welcome, Bertie. Hi, Joe. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for giving up your one free day because you're busy filming at the moment, I know. So God bless you, sir. It's a privilege and it's um, uh, just the most amazing thing to see these wonderful people. Tell us why you wanted to do Parade or how how you got involved with this project. Because at the time, I don't think you'd done any professional musicals. Is that right? I'd barely done any professional theatre is the truth. And (laughs) I owe it all to Rob Ashford with a helping hand from Anne McNulty, who was the amazing casting director. I was doing a radio play with Jamie Parker, who is an incredible singer and actor and was a couple of years of me at drama school and I knew quite well and we were chatting and he was saying he'd uh, auditioned for this musical at the Donmar and I rang <laughs> my agent and said, they're doing a musical at the Donmar <laughs> because it was at that time, you know, you come out of drama school and for the first two years, all you can do is collect information about jobs that might be happening anywhere because you um, fear that you'll never be employed ever. And um, so I pushed my agent to get me a, an audition for this musical while knowing very little about it and um bless Anne McNulty who was the casting director um she responded positively and and suddenly about seven songs arrived on my desk uh, and the full script and score and it was thrilling because uh, the other thing that happens when you're two years out of drama school is people send you kind of one line in um you know not very good um dramas on tv to do or um sort of plays that should probably never be produced and rarely do they send you the kind of thing that you've spent um three or more years training to do which is beautiful writing of depth we're thrilled that um you got the job and thank you for joining us here um your co-star in parade was uh and is a luminescent actress you may have seen on TV in shows like True Blood, Spooks and Sherlock. She was last seen in London on the stage in the dazzling Chichester Festival Theatre revival of Gypsy playing Louise opposite Imelda Staunton as Mama Rose. For that performance, she won an Olivier Award for Best Supporting Actress. It is Lucille Frank herself, Lara Pulver. Welcome, Lara. Thank you, thank you. I first saw you on stage actually at the Menier in the last five years, which I think is a later Jace Robert Brown show, but it was in London before Parade. Was it was Parade something you knew about when you were doing that show at the Menier, or is it or was it something you learned about later on? Um, embarrassingly, when I um, was asked to audition for the last five years, I'd never heard of Jason Robert Brown, and um, someone had just dropped out because the actress had become pregnant and so so could no longer do last five years. I got a call at the 11th hour can you come to the mini a to meet for it um and so i i went down and then they asked and i i sang cole porter's always true to you in my fashion thinking i don't know this piece but they said make it light make it fun so i went <laughs> light and fun and then tom murray was there and david babani went do you know who jason robert brown is and I was like, <laughs> no i literally got the call yesterday when i was doing miss saigon at the time went back and all of a sudden, everyone was in my dressing room going, oh, my God, oh, my God, you you, you were seen for the last five years, Jason Rob Brown. I was like, mm-hmm. Have you, have you been offered it? And I was like, uh, yeah, I think I think I was just, yeah, I think I was just offered it. <laughs> and 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 then I learned that there was this huge kind of cult following of Jason's going on and, and a mass appreciation. 
went to do last five years, but still didn't know about any of his other shows because I was just kind of immersing myself in that job. And then when Parade came around, I was doing Into the Woods at the Royal Opera House. And again, I can't speak more highly of Anne McNulty as a human being and as a casting director, as, as Bertie alluded to. And she brought me in to meet Rob. And I think it was it's the first time I ever had met Rob. And numerous callbacks later, maybe three or four, I was paired with Bertie. And we was, we had to sing a couple of songs together. And I was in the middle of tech. So I remember coming in for my audition in the morning and then saying, can you come back at one o'clock to sing with Bertie or something? And I was like, I'm really sorry, I can't. I'm in tech for Into the Woods. So they managed to finagle us getting in the room together. And I just remember Jason saying, can, how can I possibly cast the same person in the premiere of both of my shows? So then I thought, yeah, <laughs> not going to be my gig. Um, and then I heard Anne say, you can only, you have to cast her if she's the best person for the job. So yeah, that's how Parade came around for me, thankfully. Fantastic. Well, we're very glad that it did. Um, now your musical director on that production was an MD with an enviable CV of Broadway and West End credits, including Anastasia, Sun in the Park with George, A Little Night Music, as well as the majority of Jason Robert Brown's output, The Bridges of Madison County, Songs for a New World, Honeymoon in Vegas, The Last Five Years, and of course, Parade. It's Tom Murray. Hello, hello, hello. Bless you for joining us at the end of a really busy day of work, Tom. It's great to have you here. If you were describing the, the score of Parade, um, it sounds quite different to the last five years and Sons for a New World. What are the kind of musical worlds that we visit or that are drawn from? Yeah, so a very much Americana and specifically a, a specific type of Americana of music written by Charles Ives, a uh, uh, American composer who did overlapping textures, a lot of the overlapping things that happened, mm -hmm. uh, two things going on at one time, uh, that, that is very much, uh, an influence of Jason, very much the religious things and the, the religious undertones and then songs of the South. And then that's just all filtered through Jason, you know, mm -hmm. just Jason's version of all that, of all that stuff. Yeah. I love that. I love the bit of the, the cakewalk when it ends up, you know, they got half the orchestra playing in D flat and half playing in D. Yeah. That's a, that's a very good, that's a very good, uh, example of a Charles Ives, Ivesian thing. Notating that is impossible. I don't know how he conceived it. <laughs> you know, it's funny. He always said, you know, he, when he looks back now, he hears how precocious he was as a young writer. You know? I mean, it is sort of amazing when you think back, you know, he hadn't, He'd written songs for New World, so he'd had one show. But yeah. they're like the fact they went from Sondheim, widely acknowledged king of musical theatre, to like this newcomer. It's it's an amazing. Yeah, uh, it speaks to his his talent, but also to the the faith of Hal Prince to go. Yeah, you can do that. I mean, it was just it was just cheeky. I mean, he was really yeah. cheeky. You know that he said, "Yeah, I can do this," and that's Jason's always been unafraid. You know. Our next guest is an Oscar, Tony and Pulitzer Prize winning playwright, lyricist and librettist. Having been mentored by the great Frank Lesser, he began his career writing musicals, including The Robber Bridegroom, and went on to find huge acclaim as a playwright. He won a Pulitzer Prize and later an Academy Award for Driving Miss Daisy, a Tony Award for his follow-up play The Last Night of Ballyhoo, and a further Tony for the libretto of Parade, the third and final instalment of his Atlanta trilogy. It is the legendary... Alfred Urey. Welcome, Alfred. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here, especially to see my old friends again. It makes me feel very happy because that production parade in London at the Donmar, I think, was, I must say, the happiest working experience I ever had. 
I don't know why. I really don't know why. Rob and I have talked about it. Magic got poured into that thing, and I, I don't know how or why. But sometimes it happens, and it happened there. Yeah. So tell us how Parade came about uh, in the first place. Take us back to the start. It all happened in Atlanta, Georgia uh, in 1913 to 1915 and as old as I am I wasn't even there yet <laughs> and it was sort of connected to my own family and so I I don't know a time in my life when I didn't know this story and uh it always had dramatic potential to me and through the auspices of how of how Prince we developed a production and at the beginning, Steve Sondheim was supposed to do it with me. He had just done Passion. So he said, I don't want to do another downer like that. <laughs> so Hal said, oh, I have an idea. Daisy is working with this young guy uh, named Jason Robert Brown. And I thought, oh, great. Now we go from Steve Sondheim to this young guy that I know. <laughs> so I met Jason and... Uh, he was younger than my children. I liked him and we talked for about six months. And I don't think he'd been ever south, south of the United States in his life, except to fly to Miami from New York. I don't think he had ever been, but he listened. And about six or eight months after we started talking, I kept thinking, where is this, when is he gonna do this? He called me one very snowy day and he said, come over, I've got some stuff. And he played me the first two songs in Parade. And uh, I, unlike I usually am, I was in tears. He got it. He listened. He He's a great collaborator. We had a wonderful time. And we went on from there. We did it opening cold in New York, never having done it anywhere professionally like that anywhere else. It was in this great big, huge theater at Lincoln Center. It was too big. And Jason and I didn't have time to really finish. Well, Rob was in it. Rob was the, was the, was the choreographer. And... Uh, out of the blue, some years later, I got this call, we're gonna do parade in London. And I thought, yeah, what do they know about Georgia? Mm -hmm. But I was excited, I was certainly excited to work at the Donmar. I got there and went to the audition, saw Birdie, he did it and then he came back the same day, did it again and he knocked me out. And I think Jason secretly always wanted to play the part, <laughs> but Birdie was, magic laurel was magic and the whole thing was great what can i tell you yeah and what, did you know when when it was on in new york did you think at the time this is unfinished business there's a there's a there's a new version of this show that i'd like to write yeah the lapse of time was about eight or nine years when we we already had time that it marinated in both of us and when it came time again to work on it we just were ready we i would say it's about 15 percent different than it was it had a whole new character, a couple of new songs, and it just took off. What really got me at the Domino was you could stand on the stage and see every single eyeball in the audience pretty clearly. Uh, we didn't have that in New York. And that's the parade. It's, we, we got rid of the old one, and that's the one that's offered, that's done now. 
Fantastic. And we're, and we're going to delve real deep into the, the minutiae of what changed and why. But first, I want to introduce uh, my final guest, who is a Tony Olivier Emmy and Drama Desk Award winner, whose Broadway credits as choreographer include Thoroughly Modern Millie, Curtains, The Wedding Singer and Evita. He was director and choreographer of Promises, Promises and How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying on Broadway. And in London, he was made an associate director of the Donmar Warehouse in 2007, which saw him helm acclaimed productions of Anna Christie, A Streetcar Named Desire, and, of course, Parade. It's the one and only Rob Ashford. Welcome, Rob. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I agree with Alfred. I've never had an experience like it. And uh, it was um, a very, very special time. As Alfred said, I was the assistant choreographer, and I was the dance captain uh, for the production at Lincoln Center. And I just loved the show so much. I guess, you know, I'm a... I grew up in West Virginia, which some would say is not the South. Some would say it is. The, the, the mentality certainly was. So I felt like I understood the show, and I was a big fan, of course, of Alfred. And it was just a thrilling show to work on and be a part of. And it somehow didn't get its just due at Lincoln Center. It just was timing. It's so, there's so many things, you know, we never know what makes something work or not, but it's, it stayed with me. And then when Michael Grandage said, you know, I'd love for you to direct your very first show at the Donmar. Uh, And if you, if, if I said, what musical would you like to direct? And I said, parade, no question. And Michael didn't know it. And he went away and he listened to it and he read it and he came back and said, please do parade at the Donmar. And then I went, then I met with Alfred and Jason and said, we're going to do parade at the Donmar. And I'm pretty sure that what they both said is, okay, great, but we've already done it. So go do it. But that, that, you know, it's already written. We've spent a lot of time on that show. And I said, well, the thing about the Donmar is it's so small, the stage, the 250 seats and a, and a small, and our cast in Lincoln Center was big, a big cast. So I said, we have to do it with 15 people. So we have to double and triple cast people. And because of the nature of what that's going to do, it's going to change the show some. So we're going to have to re-examine the show in some ways and maybe some new songs and, and some new adjustments, you know. And fortunately, they were both on board for that. And they both came to London. We were all there together in the trenches together. It wasn't yeah. someone faxing in pages from another city while they're doing another show. It was It was... All of us together. All of us. Yeah. And I think that's what made it. Besides that space. It's about truth in that space, you know. And, and was it always in the back of your mind were you, when you were working on it the first time? Were you thinking, oh, I'd love to get my hands on this. I've got, I've got some ideas. Or was it, was it just something that sort of went out of your brain and 10 years later it seemed like a possibility? Well, I think, I mean, I think that in reality, Alfred and then halfway Southern me were the only Southerners involved in the original <laughs> production. And I just, and I just remember being so drawn to Alfred, you know, by that, by that fact. And, and because it is so much, it is about Southerness. A lot of it is. And having to understand what it was that Lucille was more than she was Jewish. And so it was just very important to understand the Southern part. And I feel like that maybe we didn't spend the time, um, you know, I mean, Hal, Hal is brilliant, and what a brilliant man, and he he was very um, uh, excited by the epic nature of the story and how this this murder of this one little girl in Georgia 
it ignited our entire country into this uh, battle in a way. And, and Hal was really intrigued by that. Uh, and it wasn't intriguing, but it did call it did make the show bigger, and it caused a lot of characters and a lot of things that that somehow uh, it seemed, especially with the cut down version, that we just needed to uh, fold in on this man and this woman. You know, when you when you're double cast folks, it became quite obvious in a way who would be double cast because when one character, when Britt Craig, the reporter, got the ball rolling with the story, he then his, his part went away and the governor took over. Right. So, you know, Gary Milner played both those parts. It just, the, the, the show is structured so well and the story is so well done that it was easy to do that. It was remarkable in that in a way, the Broadway production of, of Parade was kind of like a, a tryout for Parade. And by the time we really got to do it, we, we understood it. Jason and I sort of understood it. Rob really got it in a way that Hal never got it. And uh, God bless him, there would be no Parade without him. Uh, and through Rob, all you Brits got it. It was amazing. I think also what was extraordinary was the casting because across the board we all had completely different backgrounds and I, I don't know if Rob wants to talk more about this but assembling people from the pop world like Shauna Scoffrey from the straight drama world of Mark Bonner you know it, it, it was extraordinary but what was the same with everyone everyone was there open present eager like confident in failing, succeeding. It, it, the energy was, it was magical. And, and it was one of those situations where someone was brilliant at something. You're like, oh yeah, I want a bit more of that. And someone else was brilliant at something else. And you'd be like, oh, what's he up to? Oh, this is, and before you knew it, this company of 15 actors had surpassed the talent that they'd walked into the audition room with. And that was totally with Rob holding our hands and giving us that safe space to, to, to do that it was it was it was magical you're very I mean the, the great thing about the double casting of all of that is that it doesn't allow you or permit you to stereotype or to go down a certain path so you know the person you think would be the really good you know kind of drunk guy reporter but he also has to play the governor so he's also got to have some status and some so so you it ended up giving us a cast that was um, a real community. It, it, it was more versatile than that. It had to be. Now, we're going to take you back to the start of the musical and work through it from the top. So first, let's talk about the opening number. The show begins in a field in Marietta, Georgia, 20 miles from Atlanta. The year is 1862, the time of the American Civil War. And we meet this young Confederate soldier who's about to head off to fight and leave his sweetheart behind. Farewell, my lala. I'll write every evening. I've carved our names in the trunk of this tree. But then in the middle of the song, the action snaps forward 51 years to 1913. The Civil War is over and the South has lost. We are now in the city, in Atlanta, Georgia, and the young soldier has become an old one-legged veteran who's preparing to march in the annual Confederate Memorial Day parade. We gave our lives for the old 
so Alfred, I got a, a bunch of questions for you. I mean, first, this might be the dumbest question of all time. Are the hills in Georgia literally red? Yep. It looks like <laughs> it looks like rare steak when you when you land. I don't know if it still does in Atlanta, but the the, the clay is red, and uh, that song came from Mary Fagan, who was the little girl who was murdered. Grave. It said something on the grave about the, the hills of home, and Jason had listened to me babble about the South and the Red Hills and all that. And he wrote that song. Yeah, they're red. Fantastic. And so I think that was one of the first songs that he, he wrote for the show, wasn't it? It was the first one I heard. And uh, he got it. He nailed it. He totally did. And what was the inspiration for starting? Because in, in a way, it's a kind of, it's a, it's a radical choice in the sense that usually in the opening number of a musical, you'd expect to set up the, the people who are going to inhabit and be the protagonists of the musical. Whereas this soldier, we don't really see again for the majority of the show. Was that always your intention, Alfred? And if so, what was your kind of thinking? It was sort of our idea and housed together that we, we do it that way. I loved it. I thought it was a great idea. And the fact, that it was double cast the way it was at the Donmar, and now makes it even more important that it go that way. Right, because Stuart Matthew Price then played Frankie Epps later on. Frankie Epps, yeah. You know, you see Frankie turn from this kind of cute little boy into a murderer, and uh, you can understand why his girlfriend got murdered, and he thinks that Leo Frank did it. I think also that opening number, especially for Brits coming to the Donmar, you then know exactly where you are, you know, the time you're in. Neil Austin's lighting put you exactly in the right atmospheric place. Everything, you just suddenly went, okay, it it doesn't matter who's singing right now, even though it was the incredible Stuart Matthew Price, you knew exactly where where we were, I think, would you agree? Yeah, and also we added, we added Lila. There was no Lila in in Lincoln Center. Right, that was you. There, yes, because we we she's she the Southern Belle with the parasol and all that. She's the symbol, and so Lila at the beginning was very important. And also, again, double casting. I in my head, only uh, Lauren Bertie could not be double cast. Everyone else had to to be double cast, and there was nothing for Mary Fagan to be. Right, there was nothing else for her to be but Lila. And it made perfect sense. And it made perfect sense with the young soldier and with Frankie. Yeah. And you mentioned about uh, Leo and Lucille being the only ones who weren't double cast. It immediately places them as outsiders. And so when we in the next scene, um, in scene two, the parades got underway and we meet Leo and Lucille. Um, she wants to go for a picnic and celebrate Confederate Memorial Day like everybody else in town, but he's heading off uh, to work. Um, Lara, do you want to just talk a little bit about the nature of their marriage and maybe how they've come to be where they are? Um, this man who is a total outsider, you know, his Bertie's first song is talking about Jews not looking like Jews and being trapped in this marriage. And, and then in the first duet, I sing about, you know, wanting more, something's missing. Um, and, and it's not, ha- you can see that they're not in the happiest of places. There's something a little bit awry. She talks about, no, I'm from Georgia, I'm Southern all the time. And yes, I'm Jewish, but I don't say Meshuggah, no, I don't, I don't, I don't say this. We're, we're different. We're, we, we're very, very different. Talking about the opening of the show, the thing that um, uh, I can say is that I feel like I know what it's like to feel that you don't belong. And that's what that opening segment was about for me. These people make me tense. And live in fear, they'll start a conversation. These people make no sense. 
they talk and I just stare and shut my mouth It's like a foreign land I didn't understand that being southern's not just being in the south When I look out on all this, how can I call this home? I heard that you had a particular pre-show ritual with the cast that Rob and Lara mentioned. Do you want to to explain what that was? We always sang Amazing Grace before each show in the dressing room, in the men's dressing room, standing all gathered behind Bertie. And Bertie's just there doing his makeup and, and, and... Trying to get on with, like, being a serious actor. Fixing his tie. And we're all around singing Amazing Grace. MT types at singing. <laughs> <laughs> it was perfect. But, but even back to rehearsals, Bertie would turn up every morning and he'd be meticulously in the mirror, adjusting his tie, put, put, putting his, his um, pocket watch in. You know, he, he was assuming... Um, and piecing together who his Leo Frank was from the second he walked into that Joewood space. Um, Taking myself way too seriously. (laughs) No, no, it was important though. It was important work. It was important work. It really was. It was so important. And what was extraordinary is from day one, only in hindsight, I can see this. I observed him. I would observe him, not observing him going, oh gosh, I'm not doing that. I'm observing this person who is now my husband and 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 I become in the show the observer and and if for any reason the audience doesn't warm to him or like him or like what he says or does or he, he seems odd you love Bertie's Leo through Lucille right and that became really really apparent to me just by watching Bertie in the mirror every single morning I was like, I love this. I love this human being. What a generous gift. I, I wanted to make him quite hard to like. Mm. Well, you did. Uh, Thank, <laughs> thanks, Alfred. And I, I think growing up in Atlanta and knowing people of that generation, like my own grandmother, mm. uh, and seeing the men of that generation, they were not forthcoming about, about how they felt. It was very hard for them to be anything but uptight. And... What he felt, to me, was way, way down under there. And somehow or another, Lucille saw it. By the way, I knew old Mrs. Leah. I knew her. I mean, she was my grandmother's. She played like canasta with my grandmother. She was just this old spooky friend of my grandmother's. But I knew her. I never forget you showing me that picture of, of Lucille Frank sat at the foot of your grandmother's lap. <laughs> there she was. There she was. Uh, so I, I knew them. And... Well, I, I didn't understand them because I was a little boy, but I felt what they felt. And I think that she'd had a miscarriage, I think, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. Certainly nobody would ever talk about that, but it was all there. Mm-hmm. And it was things to play. I love it. I love to write things where you underwrite and the actors get to do it. I mean, what's the point of saying it all? One thing that seemed really important about the story and for the audience too would be that we have that it's a bit of a not that it's a murder mystery, but it needs to be a bit of a murder mystery because you know so Leo did he do it did he not what did happen mm-hmm. what didn't all of that I think it's very uh, it, it really helped with the with the story and so uh, I think Bertie did the most fantastic job of 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 walking that line. And he would give us, I do remember occasionally with, in notes or conversations saying like, I, I think we need a bit more, 
you know, he did it here. <laughs> yeah. And then maybe a bit, more, a bit, a bit, no, no way he did it here. Mm. And, you know, so that we could just have some of those colors in there so that the audience could leave at interval, like, and go like, oh my God, he so did it. And like the person beside him was like, no way he didn't do it. There's yeah. no way. Do you know who do you think did do it? He, well, he didn't. I mean, so, so that the, the idea of giving a little bit of that underneath actually really, really helped the show. It helped, uh, I think, in all the performances. And I think it's the balancing phrase to what Alfred was saying about the way you, you had an instinct for villains and victims. In, in all of us, there's a victim and a villain, right? In, in all of us, there's a hero and a, and a demon. And um, nowhere is that more apparent than in a, a, a case like the Leo Frank case, where, you know, these people genuinely thought he was guilty as sin. And... The fact is, we will never know. Um, I think that's what fascinated me. We, this looks like the most extraordinary miscarriage of justice, and and probably it was. Um, but we we can never know. And people still argue now, don't they? There's the Mary Fagan's family still sp- spend a lot of time and energy trying to protest that you know Leo Frank was a guilty man. As far as we know, that's what made me want to write it. Ninety nine point nine percent sure that Leo Frank didn't do it. But I always kind of played around with, well, he did look at those girls kind of strangely, and mm-hmm. he did do this, and he did do that, and he, he, you know, he was he had bulgy eyes, and uh, it gave me juice to write it. Whereas if he'd just been this innocent victim, it it never would have gotten me to do it. Yeah. Well, what's so wonderful about the story about what Alfred about what Alfred and Jason wrote too? is something very, very familiar to us in our world now, which is about halfway through telling this story, it kind of didn't matter if he did it or not, because everything became political, everything became a whole different thing. And and it kind of didn't even matter if he was guilty or innocent. It's all about how do we use it? How do I build myself here? How do I, you know, this wonderful, wonderful, you know, the Dorsey, the the person who was the, the prosecuting attorney, who then gets this chance to, you know, like maybe he could be the governor. And it, it becomes, it's so familiar. It's the news. Like, yeah. It's the news right now. It's what we're living through right now. Yeah. What a wonderful thing to see this man that Bertie was. He was a human being that started out with a human being that we saw every gesture. We understood it. We then, then get swallowed up in that. And only because everyone was distracted with that was she able to come in and they were able to solve it and they were able to come together because nobody was paying any attention to them. To the actual case itself. It became bigger yeah. than him, yes. That's yes. the glorious part of the writing. Yeah. It all starts out with a knock on the door when the policemen uh, arrive in the middle of the night, get, get Leo out of bed and take him to uh, see this, this body uh, that's been found in the basement. And um, initially it's Newt Lee that the policemen suspect, the black night watchman who uh, has found the body, and he maintains he's innocent, but says that Mr. Frank hasn't picked up the phone when he rings their house. And it's another one of those little things that you go, oh, why didn't, why didn't he answer the phone? So Leo is taken into custody. And then in the next few scenes, we meet a whole bunch of people that, for the benefit of people listening, we should probably just clarify exactly who's who. So we've got Britt Craig, who is the local reporter. He, he sees a possibility for himself to further his career by making this into a real sensation. 
we have the governor, John Slayton, and his wife, Sally Slayton, and Hugh Dorsey, who Rob's just mentioned, who is the local prosecutor. And the other character we meet is Tom Watson, who writes for this extremist right-wing newspaper, The Jeffersonian. And she says, speaks for every right-thinking Christian vote in the state. Um, but he takes a special interest in the Mary Fagan case too, because again, he sees an opportunity. Let's just talk uh, a little bit about uh, Britt Craig, because Britt Craig originally had this massive number called Big News. Big News, another week goes by in Atlanta. Another fascinating, scintillating, Stimulating, spirit-stirring week. Alfred, I wondered if you, or Rob, if you want to just talk about why that ended up on the cutting room floor. Because it's a great number. It was very good. It just was misplaced. And it, what happened was it took your mind off the main story. We, we wrote that early on, or at least Jason wrote the song. We put it in early. We didn't exactly know where we were going. But by the time we had got ready to go to London, that was out. And there was always a hole in the show somewhere around there where we lost focus on Leo Frank. And it was still there when we got to London. And Rob, you remember that there was some sort of run and I remember I was saying to you, can we just keep Leo on stage somewhere where we can see him? And you did it and there he always was. So you never lost the focus. But Britt Craig just wasn't that important a character. and. Uh, he did his bit and then we got rid of him, sort of. Well, that was one of the things too, when we, you know, when the, when I think the original, the idea of Brit was a character that was going to play throughout the entire show. So you want to set him up. Right, but he never really did. But his song was a setup and then there's just, there was just no place or time for him in the story, really, in the middle and all of that. So. Good song. Yeah, it, it's a great song. We kept the reprise and that was the one that everyone was like, I can't believe you didn't do Big News. Yeah. But, and it was beautifully done by Evan Pappas in, in New York, and we'll remember it that way. But we, we didn't need it at the Dawnmore. That's something also I remember Rob saying quite quite early on, or, or maybe it was just June previews, about you know deciding whether we allow applause. Are we talking about numbers? Are we mm. talking about buttons? Are we talking about just actually telling a story? And I'll never forget my conversation with Rob about just the musical number just being moments of this story. They're just moments. And it was such a gift for someone to say, I don't care if you're belting an F. It's just a moment where you are emotionally telling a story and then we're moving through. And it was just glorious. We really worked hard to cut all the applause and all the buttons or anything like that from the show completely. The things just kept just like yep. charging into each other. Yeah. That was a good decision, I think. It was so integral because then the audience were just allowed to witness and they were never taken out of this of this pressure cooker, like you say, of the, all these opportunists who were jumping on this bandwagon of, of this moment. And it just, it created such a wonderful environment to play in, especially because of the intimacy of the Donmar. That keys into the thing we're talking about, about judgment, because when you applaud, you pass judgment in some very basic sense that something was good and on some subliminal level maybe that you support what's just been said and um, if you don't have that then you don't have to do either of those things and also you you um, you're allowed to have a much more complex 
relationship to the continuum of the story, which is what this is, right? Hugh Dorsey reports that Newt Lee and Leo Frank are both being held for questioning about Mary Fagan's murder. Lucille visits Leo in jail. It does not end well. He takes out a lot of his fear and his anger on Lucille. Um, and then we go to the funeral. Brit Craig attends Mary Fagan's funeral and the people of Marietta are grieving, they're angry and they're overwhelmed by this tragedy that's shattered their community. And it's, it's enormously powerful music because it starts with um, the hymn, There is a Fountain. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains lose all their guilty stains lose all And Tom, maybe you can talk to us a bit about this, because I, I think I'm right in thinking that There is a Fountain is a real church hymn. That's right. But given this slightly unsettling arrangement with this kind of um, dissonant bass note that keeps coming in, do you yeah. want to talk a little bit about how the music's working in that sequence? Yeah, I mean, it is. a. I, I mean, uh, Rob, who was in the original company, obviously would know this. Um, but yeah, it is a found hymn that Jason actually used. We, we sang that in church. I, I grew up Southern Baptist, and we sang that every other Sunday. Okay. I think, although I was a Jewish boy, I knew a lot about Southern Christian hymns. And I said, I think it was mentioned in, in the biography I had read. Could be. And I said, I, I think there's a song. And the next second, they were chasing, like changing it around and making it work. There's an interesting thing about one of the things that Jason also added, and that might have been from the original music director, Eric Stern, um, but they also, just to make it all the more unsettling, all the, it's written in two-part harmony, and normally in the two-part harmony you have the sopranos and tenors on top and the basses and, and altos on the bottom, and for that number alone it's flipped. Uh -huh. All the altos and basses are on top, and all the sopranos and tenors are on the bottom. So it's just psychologically it gives this unsettled balance to the whole thing that's genius yeah and then of course he strung this song around it which is like the most beautiful you know tribute to mary this ode to mary that's what rob brought out was how heartbreaking all this was to the populace of it, of marietta georgia to see this little girl who was an adorable little girl murdered brutally uh, so there was reason for them to hate Leo Frank. And it's a moment to come back to the actual, the reality of it. Like you say, there's all this bluster and all this kind of commotion and kind of the press. And then this is taking it back to the reality of the raw grief for all these people who've known this little girl who's been murdered. When she left, you swore you'd never cry that are suffering a loss in the center of this, Mary Fagan's family, the neighbors, the children who played with her, Frankie, her boyfriend. We've got that. But we've got this minister 
who sees the opportunity, because when they all walk away, he stands over that grave and says, Sleep, sleep, little angel. He sees his chance. Britt Craig is there writing the whole thing down. He's seeing his chance. Everyone's seeing their chance already in this moment. Sound familiar, anybody? Mm. Right, mm. right. With a massive rectangle hole in the centre of the stage. With the red earth. With red earth. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, and so Hugh Dorsey goes and interrogates Newt Lee, but doesn't get anything out of him. And he says this line that I, is still shocking, which he says that hanging in another Negro ain't enough this time. We've got to do better. And tells them to blame Leo and, you know, sends the officers off and says, you know, find the eyewitnesses to match this version of events. So... Dorsey's keen to just get it wrapped up and Leo's the person he's going to pin it on. Um, what does he mean by that? What, In what sense is hanging another Negro not enough this time, Alfred? Well, Negroes were lynched all the time in Georgia, guilty or not, and they were always assumed guilty because there they were strung up in a tree. And uh, he saw Leo Frank, the way that he was, was sort of this, had this sort of creepy Woody Allen vibe <laughs> and that didn't play well in Atlanta. And Dorsey, again, it was just a feast of circumstances. Dorsey saw how to play into it and set him up as a creep. It's in his hands. See how he rubs them both together like he's trying to get them clean. It's in his eyes. Wonder why he stares at the floor and won't look you straight in the face. Something ain't right. I can tell something ain't right. I can see it in his eyes, boy. And then Brick Craig sings Real Big News. He does get his song and it kind of functions a bit like a, a montage, I guess, in a movie. It sort of accelerates the action. There's this building sense of inevitability about Leo's fate as we see Dorsey go and meet Jim Conley, who's the factory janitor and an ex-convict. And Dorsey gets Jim Conley to testify against Leo. And as Brick Craig's fortune rises, Leo's declines. And then we see Lucille, who's being hounded by... Uh, reporters and she basically yells at them tells them where to go and then sings this fantastic little two-minute song you don't know this man lara i wonder if you could just talk us through your experience of playing that song and and why she even gives this man the time of day does, does she think is brick craig one of the good guys in her eyes what's what's going on for lucille in this moment as a woman of those times i believe alfred please correct me you're seen and not heard. You, you know, that Southern Belle image of, you know, look beautiful, be on your man's arm, you know, be supportive in that way. Um, and I think the whole, um, is he guilty, is he not, that plays out within her. And then it gets to the point where the way Jason writes it, and Tom will be able to probably speak more um, eloquently about this, this kind of rise and fall for me was just... Uh, mm. uh, like trying to keep a lid on on trying not to give anything away trying not to um get my husband convicted because I've opened my mouth it, it was so the whole time it was like I'm gonna belt and then I'm gonna literally turn into a mouse because <laughs> I just got to keep the lid on on this but it is the first time you really hear from her in in that sense we've obviously heard that that the marriage isn't quite or it was had hoped to be at the, the very beginning and her desperation to want to 
to build a family with this man and for, for whatever reason no matter what any of her townsfolk feel about him she adores this man my husband is in the center of this situation and and it just felt like it was it was it was going so far just like our current climate as rob alluded to it was going so far and i and i was my my fingernails would be imprinted in my hand from holding that basket so tight with trying to you know keep control of what was at the heart of this situation while all these opportunists were kind of jumping on the bandwagon but like i say it was never it was never lucille's number to come <laughs> out and by the way i'm going to i'm going to show you i've got i've got some some lungs it was it's a pure ugh, vomit at times for me you don't know this man you don't even try When a man writes his mother every Sunday Pays his bills before they're due Works so hard to feed his family There's your murderer for you And you stand here spitting words that you know aren't true Then you don't know this man I don't think you You know, it's funny. I hadn't sort of put words to it that way in terms of the, what Lara describes, which I think is exactly right. It has these these phrases, you know, da 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 dee da dee. Surges, doesn't which it? Is, Surges. Yeah, it does. Back it, constantly, and it's sort of. I hadn't thought of it, but yes, psychologically, that's exactly what it's doing. It's sort of. Uh, I can't help but speak, and then yet I know I sh- probably shouldn't. You know, it's that battle. And I had Rob there always reminding me of this, this the Southern woman. You know what that is to be a Southern belle. Yeah, and then, and then what happens in the middle of the song is it, so it it doesn't it doesn't the words don't flow quickly. I mean, it's just it's not a stream of thought. And yet in the middle, that's exactly what happens. It just the lid comes off, and it just the words come out. Um, that's a that's a brilliant way of thinking about it, Lara. I hadn't done that. Thank you. I'll, I'll, I'll use that next time. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess that then for her, there's then no going back once that lid's come off for me anyway, which is quite early in my character's journey. She's trying to put it back on, but then before you know it, you know, by by act two, she's we'll get there. But <laughs> right, and and also she's asked. He asked him at the end. You know, you're you're saying he's good. You're saying he's whatever, but you're not saying he's innocent. And it is there's a hint of uncertainty, or it's the door's left nicely ajar on on that front as well. Um, and then, in, of course, she goes to visit him in jail and says, like, I don't think I can go through the process of seeing you in court. That is just too much. I'm going to go and stay with family. And he says, you have to be there. So when the court scene begins, you don't know if, Le- if Lucille's actually going to t- show up. And there was always an empty chair. Rob had the empty chair then. But the, the opening of the, the court sequence now is, it used to be Fiddlin' John playing some real funky violin. Um, but he, 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 he was got the chop. And it now opens with the Hammer of Justice, which... Um, which Tom yes, uh, yeah. Watson sings, doesn't he? And it replaces it, its time now that was there before. Um, what was the thinking, uh, Rob, in terms of 
that uh, th- that new number and why that was needed for that moment? Well, I mean, Fid- Fiddle and John was, was uh, I always I love the music that Fiddle and John did in mm-hmm. in the uh, Lincoln Center production. It just felt like introducing a new character at that point of the trial, a new character that isn't a witness or isn't a isn't going to do anything for the story. Just felt like, ooh, who's that now? You know, yeah. and, and so it just didn't seem. But but I also thought that uh, rather than the the carnival like aspect of the Fiddle and John character, I thought at that moment we needed that Tom Watson thing. We needed that we needed that religious fervor in there. We needed the hammer of justice. So who's gonna smack the smiling devil? Who's gonna cut the puppet string? Who will restore this angel's honor? Who's gonna swing, gonna swing, gonna swing that hammer? The hammer of justice. Rob, you saw this so clearly. That's what's just, like, in, in hindsight, I can say that, but it's just so clear. I mean, you know, not that I'm, don't misunderstand, I'm by no means saying that during that three month run at Lincoln Center when I was there every night and watching the show every night and, and all of those things <laughs> that I was, I was sitting there thinking like, oh, that needs to be Tom Watson, not Phil and John. I, it wasn't that at all. No. But, but when you know something so, when you're inside something so profoundly, Mm-hmm. that it just it just informs you in a lot of ways and there's just lots of little uh little moments that that I remember that that stood out or that you know that whether it was right or wrong just knowing I don't know just sense sense mm-hmm. we needed you know yeah and it frames it all as, as as a as a kind of much more religiously focused thing that he, from his point of view he's going to make this about the fact that he's this Jewish kind of stereotype of the uh, of uh, kind of terrible kind of Jew in your midst who's going to come and rape your daughter right. and murder her. Also, I thought that too, the whole idea of that, I, all, all these televangelists we have in this country, mm. you know, all these young, good-looking men, yeah, you know, who, not, not, not scary old withered men yeah, who are like thumping a Bible in the air, but these guys that are like, come on in, come on mm. in, that, 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 that somehow uh, might resonate more than a scary guy, right. a scary Bible guy. You know, that's why Norman Bowman, who played him, you know, just this handsome, young, vital guy who had this side inside him, you know, this this real. We then uh, hear from a bunch of witnesses. So we hear from Frankie. We hear from three of Mary's teenage co-workers, the factory girls, Iola, Essie and Montine. We hear from Mary's mother, Mrs. Fagan, who makes a statement. Um, and we also hear from Minnie McKnight, whose uh, whose role uh, is was new for this production. Um, before the prosecution calls on its star witness, Jim Connolly, who claims that he not only witnessed the murder, but helped Leo cover it up. Um, let's maybe talk a little bit about the, the factory girls going in to come up to my office. Um, Bertie, I wonder if I could ask you what that was like, because it's the factory girl sequence. I always feel like, oh, OK, I, I, this sounds convincing to me. This sounds like a totally plausible thing. These girls found this older man threatening and it seems like a, a, it could be quite truthful. But then it segues into come up to my office where Leo kind of transforms into this predatory sort of prowling guy who's seducing all the women why don't you come up to my office got a bottle of wine and the court can't pop why don't you come up to my office where it's nice and cool and the blinds are dropped if you can maybe swing by honey we'll pretend that that old clock has stopped if you came if you came if you came if you came to my office what was that like for you to perform because it's quite a, a leap from where you've been for the past sort of hour and 15 minutes this kind of keys into the you know what i've been saying about the role all, all the way through which is that you're right that what the girls say about him does sound credible 
And as the actor playing Leo Frank, the great gift is that you don't have to decide whether it's true because the song doesn't ask you to. It just says, this is an image of, I feel as though, well, the way I read it um, was that he becomes, the, it, it's a story that they're telling. And I don't have to decide whether they're telling the truth. That's for those actors to decide and to work through, right? Yeah. I want to say one other thing about the song, yeah. which is that because it's um, so clearly the image that they, it's the, it's a story within a story. I, I flipped what I did elsewhere, which is to say that the easy way to play it is to make him like an out-and-out -out monster. Whereas if you make him a credible weirdo, um, that's still the story they're telling, but it could be consistent with the truth. And so the audience is left with the question, was this what, what he really did? Or was it just a story that they're spinning? Yeah. And that's the kind of, that's the answering phrase to, this is probably a story about an innocent man who's being found guilty. The structure of the story tells you pretty clearly early on that that's what you think you're seeing. But the more interesting story inside it is, or was he? And I think what's so clever about the way they've structured it um, is that you you're never given all the information you're just given the emotionality and the humanity alfred uh, could i just ask you about minnie mcknight because she was somebody um who didn't really have a voice in the first version of the show but because originally it was newt lee that testified then against uh, leo at this point in the show for london it was minnie mcknight could you just tell us why that came about well we decided that I don't think we decided it until we got to London that we needed another character and uh, we needed Benny. Well, then the next morning I see Miss Lucille. She'll look like she ain't had a minute of rest. She says Mr. Frank made her sleep on the floor and that she ain't allowed in the bed anymore. That isn't how it happened. I'll take care of Thank you, Minnie. That'll be all. And she lives in their house, right? So it kind of cuts a little deeper because she's an ally of theirs. But she she was the maid, so she was there. And the way Rob stated, she was even there at the end answering the door. That mm. she stayed with her. That was important, I think, that she stayed, yeah. that they worked that out, whatever that was, and she was there. I mean, there's also the practicality that Conley and... and uh, Lee were played by the same person, so <laughs> yeah. it wouldn't have worked. It would have been testifying twice. But, but structurally, that needed some a moment like that needed to be there. Yeah, and we needed it later too, as Lucille's figuring out what's happening. Right. Yeah. The character of Benny was very helpful. And Tom, I just wondered. There's a, there's a few songs coming up that in a bunch of different musical styles because we get "My Child Will Forgive Me," which is this kind of like this music box waltz flavor. Um, but with a real twist at the end, we got That's What He Said, which is this really kind of funky, kind of uh, bluesy number. And then we got one of the best musical theatre songs ever written, maybe, which is It's Hard to Speak My Heart. Talk us through anything that grabs your fancy in, in that whole sequence. It's an amazing 10 minutes. I mean, I think, you know, Jason and Alfred uh, and Robin, you know, just the way the show was created was building, building, building to what is should be the biggest number in the show, it's, a, it's all a setup, or in the first act, to It's Hard to Speak My Heart. And then to come in, Jason loves doing this, and Lara and I have talked about this, where he does this build, 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 and then he undercuts. Mm -hmm. So all your all your senses are are primed for, 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 for it to be blown away. And then he goes quiet. 
you know, Jason does that a lot. Uh, it's, he, he, when I first started uh, working with him, he used to call it the one, one, two switcheroo. Um, uh, <laughs> so, you know, instead of one, two, three, it's one, two switch. Um, and, uh, and that's what, except in that case, in the case of that whole trial sequence, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. You know. Right, because the the audience gets swept along in in Jim Connolly's testimony, and that's what he said, and it's like kind of revivalist church yeah. vibes. Yeah. yeah, that's what he said. That's what he said. Yes, he said no, no, no. no. There ain't no reason I should hang. He said no, no, no. no. That's what he said. He said no, no, no. There ain't no reason I should hang. You got money in your pocket, and there's plenty more of that. I got wealthy friends and family, and a wife who's dumb and fat, and I got rich folks up in Brooklyn. If I need some ways to go, and the stupid rednecks never gonna know. Hey, no, hey, it ain't my fault that Kenny hey, said. He said no, hey, no, hey, that's what he said. The success of every number is the success of what works before it. You know, so like you said, Conley's number. Part of that, the success of that, is the Minnie McKnight and and come up to my office. You know, all yeah. those have to work in their own lockstep way. And, and someone said something to me yesterday, which I've not gone back to score and checked, but that in every chord and every harmony, and it's hard to speak my heart. It starts with just that open chord, the the the, the open E chord. And yeah. but someone said to me yesterday that the E is present in every single harmony in that song. And then becomes the knell of the yeah. of the bell ringing when he's sentenced guilty. But you know the the thing is that for most people they would never know that, but they know it on a psychological level. Right, it resonates internally. I don't know anything about this stuff, and it, I'm going to love listening to your show, Joe, because I this is really fascinating. And you grow up listening to music, and you have an emotional, physical, psychological response to it. And so there's so much information in that music, if it's well written, you can float on top of it and you can do the one, two switcheroo and you can, you can play with it. You can play against it. You can play with it. I think it was an amazing gift as an actor very early on in his career to be given this extraordinary material and, and to be able to live inside that moment and to feel so passionate about it. It's hard to speak my heart. I'm not a man who bears his soul I let the moment pass me by I stay where I am in control I hide behind my work Safe and sure of what to say seem hard I know I must seem cold and I think I'm right in saying this is the first time Leo's actually sung to another person on stage in the musical because he's had soliloquizing moments earlier in the show with how can I call this home and Leo at work but here he is interacting and sharing with the other people in the courtroom but his heartfelt statement doesn't do him any good because the jury find him guilty of the murder of Mary Fagan. The first act finishes with a cakewalk, a surreal courtroom dance sequence in which the music seems to fracture and become a bit surreal and the crowd celebrate the verdict, leaving Leo and Lucille isolated and alone in the midst of all this jubilation. 
And that sees us through to the interval, but there is so much more to come in this story. In a way, the real beating heart of the show is in Act 2, as our focus zeroes in on Leo and Lucille and their fight to overturn his conviction. We'll be discussing that in great detail with our guests in Part 2 of this podcast, as well as putting our guests through the piece-by-piece parade quiz. But for now, I bid you adieu. This brings us to the end of Piece by Piece Parade Part 1. That's the end of Parade Part 1. But don't worry, there's more music, chat and quiz action to come in our next episode. Do join us for Parade Part 2. Thank you for listening to Piece by Piece. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at pbp underscore podcast or email us with your thoughts, Show at gmail.com. Piece by Piece Parade was recorded and edited by Nikki Davison for Auburn Jam Music. Our guests were Rob Ashford, Bertie Carvel, Lara Pulver, Tom Murray and Alfred Urey. Our theme music is by Ben Cox and our production assistant is Olivia Bloom. Piece by Piece is devised and presented by Joe Bunker and produced by Pint of Wine. Do join us again.